This episode was recorded on the land of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. We pay our respects to elders past, present and emerging. We honour their histories, cultures and traditions of storytelling. Hello and welcome to Plate 3 Food Memories. I am your host, Savas Savas. For 25 years, my catering company, Plated, has contributed food experiences to some of Australia's premier events and intimate gatherings. During this time, I've observed people's relationship with food and devoured thousands of conversations around it. I believe that every memory can be pinned to a food experience and every food experience can trigger a memory. Food memories shape who we are and remind us where we have come from. One of my early food memories is eating a banana paddle pop on the miniature train at Bronte Beach in Sydney. Join me as we move the fork around my guests' three food memories to reveal what their memories tell us about them and motivates them to make our world a better place. Each guest will share a social cause close to their hearts at the end of the episode. Kaliorexi. I'm sitting in one of Sydney's dining institutions, wedged up here in North Bondi since 1993. The restaurant is Sean's, and with me is the ever-ardent, ever-creating, ever-presiding, jack and master of all trades, Sean Moran. Sean, welcome. Savas, thank you. (laughs) Restauranter, farmer, author, artist, traveller, husband, son, brother, butcher, baker, candlestick maker. Jesus. <laughs> Tall order, man. So, how have you been going since um, COVID? Well, this lockdown, rather. This one was a bit of a challenge. It was lo- obviously longer and harder for most people. But um, I had my creative outlet. I did the sort of daily menu thing and came downstairs and, you know, got the menu happening, went to the markets, just sort of kept it ticking over, putting food in bags like most restaurants. And, you know, we got through it. We feel like we're, you know, just covered ourselves and we're here. Let's circle back to those menus. During this past lockdown, you became quite famous for your framed menus, your takeaway menus. Now tell us about those. Oh, well, it was just a matter of getting the menu to people to see what they wanted to order each day. And it slowly became more elaborate, more decorative and, you know, more fun. And I just got carried away. They were the love child of Carmen, Miranda and Peter (laughs) Allen, weren't they? (laughs) And how did people respond? Uh, It's been amazing. People have just been, oh, don't stop, keep doing it. And even man and my husband said, you're going to keep doing it after that? And I kind of felt, well, I'm flattered that people embraced it the way they did. I suppose that lockdown era and it was just a way of communicating with a bit of hope and colour and you know, of the day, you know, and I wanted to be consistent all the way through. I wanted to deliver something every day to just let people know we're hanging in, you know. Well, everyone is is happy that you're back and that we're all back out of lockdown. Let's move on to the three food memories. Okay, well, I suppose it's one of my earliest and I just remember my mother slicing banana over my cereal. I remember where I was, I remember the room and um, we grew up in a place in San Susie and I remember being bare feet and just sort of 
climbing up on a stool and watching her do it. But I remember being totally mesmerized by the way she would slice it and not cut a thumb. And every slice would just be perfect. And it was so, I couldn't understand. You know, I thought, I, I imagined her to, to have practiced that all her life. You know, it was so, and I just wanted to be that person. I wanted to be that parent, that person that was nurturing something for someone else at that time. And was mama cook? No. <laughs> it was a bit of a chore for her. She was much more of a social party girl and loved life. And But she did what she did. But she grew up with that generation of sort of, you know, grave ox and tang and all that fast food stuff that we could get. She could get to her kids. You know, she was married three times, as was my father. So there was a lot of turmoil in the household, but she just wanted to feed us and get on with her life. How many children were there? There were three initially, but there were other dribs and drabs and with other marriages. And that came along the way. No offence, dribs and drabs. <laughs> <laughs> Brothers and sisters, yeah, extras. And so who, so in San Susie, San Susie's a beach kind of in the south, further at the end of Botany Bay there. Yeah. Um, did you spend much time in Botany, uh, in San Susie? I remember, no, till I was about five and then my parents split and then we moved to Guy Mears, so still in the sort of southern suburbs of Sydney. And I grew up there till I was about 16 and then I moved back into the Darlinghurst, which is where I was born and started cooking at a restaurant. So it was kind of, yeah, southern suburbs. Southern suburbs. So back to that banana, the way that you tell it, you can actually feel the knife. Yes, going into the, the farm and just, uh, and being, as a kid, you sort of, you know, always thought, don't play with knives, they're sharp. And you just, were fa it was fascinating to watch, you know. And when did you start cooking for the family? I remember coming in and help mum stir the gravy or do stuff, you know, when I was 12, something like that. Do you find now when you're in the restaurant that you go back to that sort of time in your life when you were a little kid? I suppose there's that thing of, you know, going around to each chef in their different sections and just sort of checking they're okay or just helping with a little something or, you know, tidying something up or just playing mum. You know? Playing mum. Yeah. Do you spend much time in the kitchen now? Um, I spend a lot of time all over the place from whether it's the kitchen to out the back to painting and renovating to going to the markets to writing the menu to, you just become this, you kind of have to be multifaceted when you own a restaurant. You know, you, you spend, I spent my first few years just slogging it out, cooking the breakfast, lunches and dinners. And then you realize, hang on, you've got to start training other people and you've got to be their palate and you've got to connect and get them to taste things with you. And you've got to show technique and you've got to get them to understand your style and make sure they're attuned to what you're trying to express and make sure you know all that stuff so there's obviously when you're cooking with a team it's very different to being the mother cooking at home there's a big spectrum of many hands many hands and 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 what is your style what are you trying to express um i suppose my style would be influenced by living in italy for a bit growing up in australia and having and working in restaurants in the 80s in sydney and also a farm life and how the all three sort of connect. I think my food is sort of cozy food, soft food, um, food that is not too technically mesmerizing or architectural. It's more just resonates in it could be romantic way or it could be just in its simplicity. When on the way um, into the kitchens as when I arrived, I perused today's menu. Do you, are you telling a story with that selection? 
Not really intentionally, I suppose, but it, it is a reflection of what's in season today. What we there's dishes that weren't that are on yesterday that we sort of thought, oh, we can change that today. Put that with that. Why don't we? That'd work better. You know, the garlic scapes I picked from the farm, the buds would work better. They were in a salad yesterday with golden beetroots and ricotta and stuff. But today I, we're putting them through hand cut noodles because I think they'll work better with long things of asparagus and you know. So you sort of. You sort of play. What you can't see, everyone here, is Sean doing a dance with his hands. It's quite liturgical. So you can actually see the movement of the dish, the the direction with his handwork, and pretty much what I do as well. It just helps you give that understanding. Yeah, of that, the dish. It's it's actually quite nice. It feels you actually are are dancing in the dish. Uh-huh. So here we are in at the top of Campbell Parade in North Bondi. It's quite an iconic spot. I'm looking out directly onto the the little the baths there in North Bondi Beach. Sean, what is it like working? here you know your day starts with breakfast what's breakfast do you have breakfast here at the restaurant or do you well usually i might grab a bit of yesterday's bread and make a piece of toast or i might have a bowl of granola that we make or just some fruit or a cup of tray of tea before i go to the fish market or whatever you know it's every day is different as far as that is likewise the weather is it every day has a different feel here do you use the beach much do you walk well i'm not really a surfer i love watching but i love i i swim in the warmer months a bit (laughs) but i'm not i love i just love being here i love when you arrive from the farm sometimes and you know the tide is low and you get that really salty briny smell and the air's thick with that mist and you just breathe it in. And then in winter, you get whales or, you know, summer you get, well, like last night, the wind, we had the kite surface flying through the air. There's just so many and different light at different, you know, like the coast is so mesmerizing. It's really. And then that comes back into the restaurant. Yeah, it? I suppose so. It has a corroded feel. <laughs> so it's been here since 93. That will tr- Let's work out the years. That's like how many years? 28. 28 years. How much has changed? Wow. Well, this on this little point, you know, there used to be a photocopy shop two doors down. There used to be a phone booth out the front of the restaurant. It used to be like one little cafe up the road and a sandwich shop. And it felt much more suburban. Whereas now, of course, it's sort of it's almost like LA or Miami or something. It's got a real, you know, glamour feel. But you've <laughs> managed to keep a bit of old Bondi here. Yeah. with your little wedge of a restaurant? Yeah, I, I kind of think um, it's the place, despite another lick of paint or a new cushion or something, but it still has a sort of old-school resonance. Does it feel like home? Yeah, very much so. Often yeah. I've got to remind myself, shit, Sean. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you, go, you, want to share, you want it to feel like that. And very happy to have people back eating in the restaurant. Oh, of course. That's the whole thing about hospitality. You love atmosphere you love connecting to people what's come first sean is it is it the food that comes first or the people or is it just two things that come together and just go boom crescendo crescendo is a combination of adrenaline is what the industry thrives on it's very rare you have a night in a restaurant where you're totally thrilled with how everything went after so many years after After so many years like there's so many dynamics that can make or break a night whether it's the mood of a chef, whether it's the ripeness of something, whether it's how the dish was served, whether it was the rhythm of the dockets, whether it was the mood of the customers, whether it was just the general atmosphere as the customers as a whole in the space, whether it was 
so many things. It's really rare to sit back and say, wow, that was a great night. And so circle back to or going back to the memory of mum in the kitchen, what was the atmosphere and the emotion like then? You said mum wasn't much of a cook. No. Well, my mum and dad married when they were in the early 20s. We were three kids 18 months apart. And to be honest, I think they were both a bit overwhelmed about what had happened. And it was just a matter of sort of getting by, I think. You know, we didn't have any elaborate meals or... It was very basic. Which brings us to your next memory, food memory number two. Tell us. Um, well, it's a travel memory. So, you know, whenever you step out of your world, you're, you're inspired and influenced by smells and cultures and flavours. And anyway, it was, it was about 1986. It was summer and it was my first trip to Italy. And... Um, Why did you choose Italy? Because... I hadn't, I'd been to France, I'd be, I cooked in London, I'd been to other places in Europe, but Italy I was saving up because of a mutual friend who was Italian and another friend that had a restaurant I'd worked in and she wanted to open a restaurant there and I fell in love with the romance. And how did you go from Greyvox to travelling? Hunger. Hunger. I knew there was a better world out there, I knew that there was you know, healthier food to eat. I knew that, that, that I craved. Where did you see it? Where did I see it? Um, you could get a magazine back in the 80s and 70s, 80s called Epicurean. Yes. And it was kind of titivating about flavours and great writers and restaurants. I remember Ferrara Waters Inn was in there. Stephanie Alexander was in there. You know, there was a handful of chefs that were inspiring and, you know, had travelled and were influenced by that. So... It was a culture I wanted to absorb. I wanted to feel... And you were, what, at this stage, you were 22, 23? I started cooking when I was 16, but when I first travelled, 21, 23, and travelling again, yeah. And what was it like? I mean, let's talk about, I I love aviation, so what was it like catching a plane in the mid-'80s? must have been like three stops to get to... Well, you could smoke. You could smoke. (laughs) (laughs) It's very important. I I didn't smoke, but, yeah. I'm just saying it's it's remarkable really, isn't it, to think that that was... It was exciting, you know. It was as exciting as, I suppose, most people today when they go on their first big trip. And So you, it's 1986, you've flown to Rome. What happens? You arrive in Rome, Fumicino Airport, and... Yeah. And, well, um, we have a couple of connections in our little notebook of people to track down and... Went to the payphone with your little... <laughs> exactly, your with your jetoni. Did you t- oh, tell us about the jetoni. I'm too young for that. Oh, so the jetoni is a coin that you only use for public phones and it's got slots in it back in the day and you buy the jetoni to go in the phone. So it's a currency for communicating. Right. And we had our jetoni. Anyway, we met with Marco. And who was Marco? Marco was a friend of a friend. So, and... Marco, he was an architect from Florence and he had a, an old stone house in Fiesole, which is in the hills outside of Florence. And he invited us to come and stay the weekend. And so we did. And of course, that's where I wanted to cook them a meal. And we he went around on a walk with him and outside of the stone villa, there were clumps of what looked like weeds to me, but he sort of picked leaves for me to try and it was wild rocket. And I'd never tasted wild rocket. And what was the sensation? Well, it was, you know, it sort of gives you a bit of, sl- of a slap first because it's peppery and it's, you know, got that zing, but it's got that nutty sweetness at the end. And so it was an instant thing of, okay, wow, shit, this is just right here. That's kind of the tip of 
the iceberg when it comes to Italian heritage and things they grow and the flavour of the soil that goes into their food, which is something that's another story down the track. You know, it's, that resonates deep, you know, with things like grapevines and all that sort of stuff, irrigation and what we do here compared to what happens in Europe. So the taste of the soil and the flavour and that sort of thing that really resonates, especially when you're so new to it. And what did you do with the rocket? Can I press you on yeah, what you, you picked? Did you pick it? And yeah, take we it picked back? it. Yeah. I remember we went to the local markets and I remember we cooked a fish dish and I think we cooked a bavoir because of my French training. You know, I thought, oh, that would impress them. And I think we cooked a whole lot of vegetables and we just made a salad with the rocket, I think. And, you know, we were respectful but also a little bit ambitious probably, a bit restauranty because we were desperate to absorb our, our new life. Who are you with? I was with Marie, who is a, a long-time friend. She was born in Mudgee, but her parents migrated here from Naples in the 40s. And so she was Italian-speaking, and, you know, she was you know, she was the connection when I couldn't talk, you know. So it was that was a great loophole. And she's still a dear friend today. She lives with us at the farm, and she helps at the restaurant. And, you know, it's, there's been a long-life connection of that culture, which has been invaluable to yeah. me. You started cooking when you were 16. Where were you cooking in Sydney? I was cooking at a little French restaurant called Lobergard, and it was in Cleveland Street in Surrey Hills. And anyway, it was a little gingham-clad, tavernery sort of frog's legs and snails, that sort of restaurant, sort of very provincial, kind of scary for a young 16-year-old that just started cooking. But it had a feeling of hospitality. You know, the, the owner was gay and French and... You know, he was doing dishes that he grew up with. So there was this deep-rooted cultural thing, you know. Even the garlic was in jars that was imported from France. You know, the snails, the you know, the pate was mixed in the sink. It was a country pate. You know, the veal, scallops of veal with lemons. You know, it was all very culturally rich as far as, but foreign to me, you know. And what did it give you? What did it, what did it spawn? It, well, it spawned. You know, the flip side of that, in the meantime, there's a chef called Patrick Julier who had a place called Le Café de, Le Café in Oxford Street, which is on the corner of it became with several restaurants over the years. But anyway, some people might know it, Le Café Nouveau. So this was the modern take of the French food that was coming into Sydney at the time. So there was this culturally rich, traditional style of cooking that I first landed, and then there was this modern take. So I was desperate. I was there for a few months, and then I was desperate to start absorbing new stuff. So, so any train, any formal training, education? I went to TAFE and learned formally, which is kind of here and there as far as not that inspiring with the ingredients and the quality of them that they use, but it was more about, you know, learning a technique and I suppose, you know, how to use a knife efficiently and sharpen things and do all that sort of stuff and hygiene stuff and, you know. Um, but restaurants were where it's at. Restaurants were where it was exciting. So Cleveland Street... Oxford Street. Okay, so um, Boncafar was another little restaurant, a protege of Patrick Julia called Martin Toplitsky. And Martin was the son of another sort of food doyen, um, Greta Anna Toplitsky, who's written, written several cookbooks and um, had cooking classes on the North Shore and basically inspired a lot of domestic Julia Child style cooking. Um, Martin was a more avant-garde punk, you know, used to smoke joints in the kitchen and 
you know, we used to go to the fish markets at the start of the day, then we go to the butcher, then we go to the baker, then we go around to the fruit shop, and then we'd make a menu up, and there was just him and I in the kitchen, and it was completely overwhelming. You know, there were five entrees, five main courses, and we did everything, you know, that afternoon for that menu. And Linda Jackson had covered the tablecloths and Iggy Pop blasting on the music. It was a punk restaurant in the heart of King's Cross with hookers standing on the corner. You know, it had such attitude. I was just, wow, you know, this is, I've hit, you know, it was exciting. Anyway, so he had a big influence in his boldness and his palate and his colourful way of presenting food. And then I worked at Barara Waters Inn and that was a different style altogether. That was classic French, more you know, more elaborate in its far its discipline and its technique and but also very cutting edge at the time for Sydney. And um by this stage you've amassed enough skill and confidence and you're gonna start travelling. Yeah, I was hungry to travel. So the moment I finished my apprenticeship I was overseas and I was I landed a job cooking in London privately, which was great. You know, there was a market a street of markets behind where we lived and I could tr- I could work a few days a week cooking and then I'd go to Paris on the weekend or be able to dip into that world of a whole other world of food. I get a I get a sense a very strong sense that you that you attract people and that these relationships continue to shape who you are and what you do. I've had lots of relationships that have been uh, evolved into my life and through the restaurant and I've uh, been born through the restaurant. Um, another woman, Marie, was one of them, and you know, Italian influences and culturally, she taught me to speak Italian, and we travelled together. How is your Italian? Uh, it's only conversational stuff, but you know, I get by. I've, I haven't spoken for years, apart from you know, got a couple of Italians in the restaurant today, so you know, we can throw words around and pretend. But then there's also um, a great Tasmanian buddy of mine that recently passed, but. She was such a food lover. She used to have a sandwich shop in Darlinghurst called Get Fat. Her name was Jenny Learmonth, and she had a, um, a partner, Lisa Monsell, who's still around today, and they were both so generous with their style, and you'd go in there and you'd get big rolled cakes and sandwiches stacked high. And I remember one sandwich in particular was layers of fried eggplant and watercress and blue cheese. And I had it without the blue cheese, and it was still as remarkable just the flavor of fried salty eggplant thin slices and the clean pepperiness of watercress as a sandwich so there's a good one to run with but anyway jenny you know she knew i had a hankering for sort of boarding school style dishes and when we're at the george hotel she came with me there and she helped she basically perfected the recipe for a baked custard which we call jenny's baked custard ever since um, you know, with a nutmeg crust, the perfect amount of cream to milk ratio, the perfect amount of egg yolks, slowly cooked, just the, you know, and people just still today, oh, we want the, when's the custard back on? You know, if we take it off, it's one of those. And, you know, how often does it appear on the menu? Uh, Should we come for that? Well, that's, yeah, you can ask, I suppose. Yeah, every now and again, we have waves of times where it feels like, oh, we need the back covers again, you know. But then there's times when you sort of want to do other things. We need it or we need that connection. It's that the same thing where you go back to your mother slicing the banana for you, all those the custard memories, the, all those things that are deep-rooted food memories that you get excited by yourself that warm your heart. 
just while we're talking here, I'm watching Sean speak. He's very, very animated and he's actually in the plate. So you feel like you're doing this big excursion (laughs) in the main course plate, in the side plate. It's really thrilling to watch. Now to your third memory, which tells me much, much about you um, and how you take cues from the land. The land is very important to you. Tell us about this one. Well, this one I kind of think um, was a powerful one in so many ways, but we were up at um, um, uh, Cape Levesque, north of Broome, a couple of hundred kilometres up there on a very basic sort of camping holiday, which is set up by the local Bardi people. And it's thatched roof huts with a pile of wood in the corner and the beach. And you can go fishing in the most amazing dazzling coloured water. And um, it's just the most magical place. Anyway, I didn't, <laughs> I'm sure a lot of people have discovered it since then how too. Did but... you, how did you find yourself there? How did you get there? Oh, what word of that? mouth. You know, you often talk amongst friends about, oh, where have you been? Where, you know, and, and for years people said, you've got to go to Cape Levesque, you'll love it up there. You know, you can go and go fishing, collect mud crabs, you know, just sleep under the stars with fire and, you know, and that just romance, you know, I was totally a hawk. Um, and so we've been, we're, we've been about three or four times. Um, it's really worth going on so many levels. But the one day we went on the camp, on the mud crab tour, you sort of wading through mangroves and feeling a little bit, oh, am I meant to be here? But that's the way it's done. And you're led by the, a couple of local guys that um, are pretty confident, even though you say, well, what's the stop of, you know, crocodile? Oh, they go, the stick. <laughs> <laughs> so we've got a stick to defend ourselves against croc. Did you see any crocodiles while you were up there? Not while I was wading, but I kind of felt their presence. But anyway, after we did the sort of wading thing, we didn't, ha- we didn't catch any mud crabs, so it was a bit disappointing. We headed back to camp and... We were just sort of hanging around, and then later that afternoon, we saw the truck pull up with a, and out they popped with a sack, hessian sack full of mud crabs for us. It was so touching to know that they wanted us to have these mud crabs, and they caught them for us, and they'd made the effort to bring them to us. And that was one element of it being a food memory. And then this, the the other dimension of that is the way I went to cook them. Can you tell us how you went yeah, to cook them? Yeah, I was basically yeah. just sort of killing the crab through the head quickly, peeling off the back of the shell. And inside the back of the shell, there's all that sort of mustardy brain meat that sort of often you'd rinse off and discard and then you just crack the rest of the meat and cook it up together with whatever. You know, it could be chilies, garlic, you know, um, which was kind of the path I was going down. And then in the hut next to us with... Linda, and she was another local Bardi woman that was a teacher at the local university, and her eyes lit up when she saw me sort of getting into the the mud crab thing, and she came and engaged with us. And one of her, as soon as she saw that mud crab back, she just lifted up and said, "Ah, ah, ah, ah," and put it straight on the fire with on the warm part of the coals. So the 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 shell was became the the Basically, the crab back was sitting on the grill and all the, that was their most prized part of the crab. That intense, they let it cook down, all the moisture evaporate out. It's left there for about 20 minutes until it becomes this sort of really pungent, a bit like when you smell prawn paste cooking, you know, that intense shellfish flavour. And I can just remember tasting it and being totally shuddering at the 
the sort of oh, intensity of it, but also just shuddering at my own ignorance to feeling for feeling like I'd been so wasteful for so long. So a privilege. Yeah, it was so a, a privilege. The knowledge that she shared and the way that you sort of think, right, okay, I get it. Oh, I shouldn't be wasting that. That's an important part of the flavour. And, you know, you could use the white meat and sort of dip a little bit on that or, you know, it felt so respectful too. And it really resonated with me. It was a very strong and how did And how did Linda respond to your response? Oh, she was chuffed. She was chuffed, yeah. And it was, you know, because I suppose, I don't know, like uh, is, you know, the white arrogant thing goes on very deep as far as, you know, their culture is concerned. And you want to be as respectful as you can, especially when you're in a, in an environment that they've created for you to come and stay so that, you know, you want to be able to absorb stuff. And it just it felt such an, a really lovely connection for the tour. Speaking about the white man, tell us about your, your feeling about Indigenous inequality in Australia. How does it sit with you? It's awkward. It's embarrassing and it feels, you know, it just feels like it's brushed aside, especially now that, you know, all this COVID thing and you sort of know it's hitting communities that are vulnerable and, you know, are, are just resentful anyway that they have to sort of probably even get a vaccination, let alone, you know, put up with us anymore and our sort of way of life and how we've... Makes you sad, doesn't it? It does make me sad. Hurts the heart. Yeah. Have you had more trips similar to the, the broom experience? Well, I've been back a few times and I, I'd love to go again. We drove around Australia in a Holden station wagon for three months, Manu and I, when we first met. And that was very romantic and it was fishing and cooking over fires and just surviving. You know, there was times when, you know, he'd get a job as a clown at the Darwin show or, and I'd be, you know, uh, working in a bar in a restaurant as the pool bar guy that had no idea about making cocktails, but I was a you know qualified chef, and it was just bizarre. We were both thrown into these weird sort of jobs, and just you know, but it was so romantic and so pure, and the light and everything that just that timelessness of travelling around this country, and it's the most valuable thing. Now the farm in Bilpin. Yeah, how's that going? Well, what's happened to that? It can be overwhelming at times because you feel. There's so much you want to do, and it, it's a very much a project, a living, breathing project. So it involves a lot of people to get on board and to help you get through. You know, we've got to do that. We've got to prune that. We've got this sheep to go, this cows. We've got to plant this. The garlic's ready to harvest. The other day I had to snip garlic buds because by snipping the buds, for example, it's like pruning a bush. You actually give more volume and the the bulbs swell up so you get a couple of weeks later then you harvest the garlic you know what i mean so there's rhythms that if you miss a bit of the rhythm you you sacrifice a crop or something and so it plays on your mind a bit as part of the guest involvement with plated three food memories i'm asking each guest to share with us a social impact cause or organization that is important to them that inspires them and that motivates them. I often wish I could contribute more, but Oz Harvest, I think, is one of those. Can um, you tell us about that? Yeah, Oz Harvest is basically um, Ronnie Khan's the founder of it, and I sort of met her in her the stages when she was sort of starting it, and 
it was I, I just had such faith in her and her passion for um, utilizing leftover food. So it's that thing about waste and that thing about sustaining other people that are less fortunate. And so she's done that with you know she's just a dynamo as far as that goes. And often um, we can't utilize what we because our leftover scraps go to pigs and into compost and stuff. So we're often not in the situation to contribute like I'd love to. But if we do events or something like that, that's often where you would have leftover food that could be a meal that can go to, uh, you know, disadvantaged people. They're a wonderful organisation, Aust Harvest. They, I see them, they've got a little shop front in Surrey Hills yeah. and they're distributing food hampers to people yeah. who need it. And there's quite a queue and yeah. it's, they're very, very generous. She's doing a good job there. Thank you, Sean, for sharing your three food memories with us. You've taken us on a journey of awakening. You, we've come with you on a leap of faith of cooking in Italy and your rebirth and learning how to cook crabs in the northern part of Australia. The listeners and I thank you very much indeed for this generous insight into your three food memories. We send you and the wonderful folk who support you much, much love. Deva, thank you so much for having this. It's, it's a fascinating program. I'm thrilled to be part of it. Thank you so much for listening to Plated Three Food Memories. If you enjoyed this episode, please tell your friends about it, online or in person. You can also subscribe, rate it, and write a review. Bye for now.